0: previously on Drinks with Tony. The stuttering John Melendez. Why drink? Well, Howard created you. What was the feeling curve after that? Hey, you mind if I go take a piss and get a beer? Right in the middle of the city. It made me even more anxious. Well, what what else you got going on? Hey, thanks a lot, man, It's it's been a blast. On segment two of this episode, we have my interview with director Bent Hammer. We discuss his film based on Bukowski's novel, Factotum, starring Matt Dillon. That interview is from the archives of Drinks with Tony around 2015. But first, here's our featured guest of the week, Stephen J. Schwartz. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show.
1: Hello, this is Stephen J. Schwartz and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. (laughs) Get on the Drinks with Tony show.
2: Yeah. You know, but... uh,
0: Yes, you were in North Beach uh doing research on a book and then San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. And then there was um you were just talking about there was that there's a bookstore in the Tenderloin that you were talking uh, about, yeah. Ago.
1: I don't know if this is 20 years ago or what. Uh I think it was called McDonald's. Um, but I remember and this was like a um, Turk uh and then I forgot the cross street, but it was right there in the Tenderloin. Um, and it was like a two-story one of these crazy old hoarders bookstores where it was two or three stories tall, and it was just filled with um, with books and magazines, and and you know rows and rows and rows. You couldn't make sense of anything, but it was a beautiful experience. It's a kind of thing that you know where indie bookstores could just live and and thrive for. It'd probably been around for 50 years, I imagine. Um, and then I don't know, it disappeared at some point when all the when all the indie disto- bookstores started to disappear. But but that was a great experience, and it was also you're kind of taking your life in your hands when you're turn onto that street, you know, and you, and you, and you go and you try to, you, you, you duck into that bookstore, which was a scary experience as it is going to the bookstore, but around that bookstore, you don't want to be caught anywhere, you know. Um, but I, I miss those those days, and I just didn't know if you if you were aware of that bookstore or not.
0: Yeah, I'm not. Um, there used to be this uh, newsstand on O'Farrell called Herald's, and that had everything, and that's where I would get my maximum rock and roll uh, you know my my two dollar allotment for the month in the 90s. You know I'd be like, all right, and then I'm gonna read all the other like, you know, magazines I can't afford. Yeah. <laughs> without yeah. yeah,
1: I do miss all the good um, the great bookstores. I live in this the South Bay um, in L.A. area, which is uh, uh, you know uh, Hermosa Beach, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach that area. But in Hermosa, there used to be my favorite bookstore in all of L.A. Uh, called the Either or Bookstore. Yeah. Do you remember that at all or not? No. Okay, because you're so new to here, so that yeah. That was one of the better ones, and I remember when I uh, graduated college, I had like $120, you know, to my name, and I uh, and then a little bit of money just to get a hotel room in, in in Hermosa, and I was living in the valley at the time, so I I came in, I spent a Friday night, and I spent all that 120 bucks. On um, on just books on and you know these were when books were like five dollars and ninety five cents so I was able to get you know twelve or fifteen you know books and all classic novels and stuff and just spend the entire night and this place used to stay open until till midnight um, that's back in the day man
0: well and that that brings up something that I find really intriguing is how important books are to uh, to you because the books have essentially they saved my life when I finally you know figured out I could read them and. <laughs> In my 20s, I wasn't able to read until I was really? yeah, after I got out of the Jehovah's witnesses. Oh really? Yeah, oh, yeah. So they, well, they didn't teach you to right? read? No, they taught you to read. So I was. It wasn't like I was illiterate, okay. but I was. You know, I knew how to what
1: read the read? Bible. I got it. I got. It. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so, uh, so it's just really cool that you just had enough money for books and you spent it on books.
1: It was the best experience of my life. It's just to to get, you know, and I was I was influenced by um, Steinbeck and Jack London. So I remember picking up Martin Eden. Um, and Seawolf, you know, and um, uh, John Updike, picked up some John Updike. Um, uh, Kerouac, I'm a big Jack yeah, Kerouac and a fan of the Beats. So um, so I picked, I've got just about, I've got everything Kerouac's ever written, and I've got everything that Bukowski's ever written, too. Um, and so, yeah, so I would just eat that stuff up, and, and I would sit in cafe, and this was actually, this was a time where there weren't many cafes around, especially in the South Bay, so I would go to bars, and I would write. I would, I would hang out all night and, and write at bars. Um, and read, you know, read the literature, and I love that. That was. I wish I had time to to, to do that these days. Just disappear into a novel, you know, and and, and not focus on anything else.
0: What was? When was the time uh, that you realized you were a writer? Um, when you started writing, because you know how self, you know how much uh, imposter. I still have imposter syndrome I'm not sure if I'm a writer. Oh, you know when yeah, you get that. So, but when you, when you started to go, wait a second, I got I got something for this.
1: Well, the f- I always avoided calling myself a writer. Um, I had written when I was a kid and it didn't really take it seriously. I thought I was going to be a filmmaker. I was planning on being a film director. And I went to film school and was studying that. But I was always writing. Um, and I think it was... Um, after my dad died, I wrote a short story uh, called Yard Candle. And, uh, and I submitted that to a couple competitions and, and won both the competitions. So at that point I felt like Okay, but I still kind of felt like I had a long way to go, and I really didn't want to think of myself as a writer, and I was writing screenplays at the time, too. Um, but when I was in college, I went out to do this um, copy assignment, uh, copywriting assignment for, um, I think it was for The Abyss, movie The Abyss, and it was for like radio copy and TV copy. And I was sitting in this room with this producer, and they were going to show me a, a, a rough draft of the film. And the producer was on the phone, and he was talking to somebody, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm here with the writer right now. And I looked around the room, and I was the only one in the room. And I thought, I'm the writer. He's talking about me. I guess I'm the writer. And, and I realize I have to start to refer to myself as the writer. I'm, I'm, and because I'm now going out for a job, you know, I can't say, well, you can call me a writer or not. And it's like, well, when, we can pay you or not, you know, because <laughs> we're going to pay the writer. So, um, so yeah. So I can't. From that point on, that just, you know, that was a moment, uh, a little epiphany where I realized, oh, I guess this is what it is to be a writer, you know. Yeah.
0: You're all can Man, I wish I had a micro cassette on me. Can you just say that again and refer to me again? Go ahead. I'd like to
1: I'd like to hear what you just said again. Can Tony get this like, you know, 30 years from now? <laughs> I could probably use a real drink instead of caffeine right now. So Are we going to really start hitting shots in a minute? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not a good drunk. I'm a sleepy drunk, which is a terrible drunk.
0: I think you know what? Me too, but I think that's just cuz I I think it's cuz I got older. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. My liver used to be able to hand a lot more than one shot of, of. So that that's why when I get something to drink I always get like the best. Like I'll get Macallan, right? Because that's the only drink the, that's the only shot I'm having the entire night. So that's where I'm gonna put the money, you know.
0: I mean I can't believe like in my, you know, late twenties, early thirties, I was still just I would drink like six beers and go jump in a pit at a show and just be going all night and then now I'd just be like three beers and then a corner.
1: Do you, have, do, you have, do you have
0: nap places here for me?
1: I You know, I jumped into a mosh pit. Um, I don't know, this was maybe maybe 15 years ago. I was with my wife and we went uh, into Hollywood and there was a mosh pit and I thought, hey, I'm gonna do this. Just randomly in Hollywood or was this at a show? It was, it was at a show, some like, you know, an unknown name, uh, you know, punk rock and band. And, and apparently, I mean, I don't know the culture of the mosh pit, you know, and apparently, if you're an older dude jumping into a mosh pit and nobody knows you, it's like going into the wrong surf crowd. You know, in the South Bay, you know, where everyone slashes your tires up up on the hill while you're surfing. And so, I mean, they just targeted the fuck out of me. It's like I I, I jumped into the mosh pit, and my wife's all like, "Are you really doing this?" And then she just got to see me get like kind of knocked around the shit until I got tossed out. And I go, "Okay, I've done that. I can check it off my bucket list now."
0: Check it off your bucket list before you're 70. Because if you're doing that when you're 70, that's...
1: Right. It'll be the last thing you do on your bucket list, actually. <laughs> do you surf? No. No, I, I, <laughs> I... It's ridiculous that I live in the South Bay and, and I don't surf. But I didn't grow up there, so... so I still intend to surf someday. I mean, I'm going to be moving to Santa Cruz in the summer and... And maybe I'll start to learn to surf up there. You know.
0: I mean, it's ridiculous. I have a
1: mustache and I'm not a hipster. So there's so many. Rid- I think you might be a hipster, actually.
0: They won't let me in. Yeah, they don't.
1: Look- they let you into hipster. Cra- Isn't this? This is a hipster cafe. We're at the Alco. Yeah, look! Look where they
0: put us in the corner. So they, they're like, ah, yeah. Here, here goes our here goes our rep. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway. um so i've got i got to read a few of the stories it was fun and some of my friends were in here like rob Roberts, and yeah. uh, and it's just like oh my god
1: um you got a bit of a connection to the ucr crowd i guess yeah, yeah. So you have mark caskell smith david eulen yeah. liska um is uh, is a friend of mine as well too liska jacobs we were in um i went back and got my uh, mfa a couple years ago and liska were in the same class and so i was i was reading catalina and workshop you know wow. isn't that cool
0: I loved that book.
1: It's great. It's yeah. a great book. yeah
0: it was, um, it was interesting. I, this will be my little I, I was just weird about it because I was talking to Dara and her and I was just like, why why do people keep saying it's an angry woman or an angry feminist? This is just an amazing yeah. book. don't don't call it that And they're just like at me like, why well we're letting people call it that I'm like, no, it's just good.
1: I didn't know anyone was calling it that. I really yeah, to me I it just a few people, yeah. really to me it reads like classic <laughs> literature. Yeah. Like you know, Dorothy Parker or Katherine um, uh, Ann Porter, or, you know something from that era. It really reads like the turn of the century classic novel, and I thought it was beautiful.
0: So, because yeah, you, you've been working in Hollywood for years and you've yeah. been writing for for years, well, what was um what was your uh, what made you what made you decide to get an MFA in uh, creative writing? Um,
1: was it creative writing? I'm sorry, I know yeah, they. Do it was creative writing. Um, well. See, my Hollywood years, I actually worked. The last time I really worked officially in Hollywood was when I was the director of development for Wolfgang Peterson, and that was a number of years ago. Um, I left his company because I wasn't getting any writing done. Um, that was 24 7, that was you're a development exec, you're reading, you know, every weekend I was reading uh, 10 to 25 screenplays, um, and, and every weeknight I was reading a screenplay, and it was just, there was no time to write. So I left there, um, got a day job, and um, and just got 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 managed to detox from Hollywood for a bit because Hollywood's a, a tough place to, to live in in your head, you know, um, especially kind of at that level with a big thriller director. Wolf directed um, Air Force One, and, and in the Line of Fire, and yeah. Troy, and The Perfect Storm, and all these kinds of films. So it was really on the inside, and, and at a certain point, I just wanted to get out and and be in control of my own story. Um, so I, I got a day job and I started writing. and I started writing novels and I got really happy writing novels. And I always kept one foot in in film, but but really mostly sticking to the world of writing novels and, and doing the day job and supporting my family and all that kind of stuff. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> hey, I don't
0: know. I was just so lost in your voice and what you were saying about it. it's. Uh, <laughs> I got lost in it too, I guess. <laughs> it was. Uh, it's interesting that the and that's exactly the book uh, Hollywood versus the author because you've been on both sides of it um, and I always feel like I'm a novelist first and I, I kinda of still don't feel like I understand the Hollywood system like like um you, you said you were in development what, what exactly does that mean uh, when you're working you're working with one director yeah?
1: so Wolfgang Peterson uh, is a director and a producer and so when a talent the talent could be a director, it could be a producer, it could be the, the actor, or, or big writer, or whatever. Um, they, um, they'll they get a producing deal with a studio. So, Wolf King had st- his uh, deal with you know Sony Pictures, and then with Disney, and then you, you have like three-year deals every now and again. Um, and they support everything that you do as, to, to make a film. So basically he was looking for properties for him to direct and for him to produce so he wouldn't always direct them oftentimes he'd be a producer on it and his producing partner would, would work with this with him on these um, and then a handful of these maybe once a year once every year and a half he would direct one of those so in our slate you know when he was directing let's say outbreak um, we were also producing another five or ten films that we had in development um, and maybe five of those got made and the other five or ten Um, We're continually in development, which means that you take the story and you rewrite it and you rewrite it. You hire new writers and you hire new writers. And and, and during that process, the studio's spending more and more money on the new writing team and and preparing this this screenplay to become a movie. And at some point, there's so much money against it that if it doesn't get made, then um, then you you just kind of get in a situation of, of development hell where maybe the original screenwriter you know is you know 10 you know 10 parts away from the the product that you're working with now and in and, you know and, and he doesn't even recognize and he might even get he or she might get screen credit because it goes to the directors guild for arbitration um, but he may not recognize anything on the screen as his own
0: it's such a trip yeah and and that's essentially some of the stories that you've brought together how did you um how did you come up with how did you approach uh these uh, authors and screenwriters who've been in and out of the game? Essentially, I mean, you've been in Hollywood for so long, so you, you could probably just go, hey, friends, raise your hand. Or maybe not. Maybe it's harder than that.
1: Well, my, uh, this, is, this is, you know, when I left Wolfgang's Company, I started writing novels. Um, first of all, I didn't know a single author. And then as I kind of got into this world, now I know thousands of authors, right? And I love it. I love this, this community of writers more than any other community I've found Is just is writers are the best, authors especially.
0: Yeah, I'm, um... The, I always tell that to my students. I'm like, really? novelists are, it's, it's one of the stupidest things you can do in your life, but it's so full of cool yeah. people. It's the only club that I feel okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's the only club that everyone's a little bit of a, a, an outcast, you know? And I love that. And, and you can sense it. And so we all get together, all these outcasts, and we form a group, you know? And we go to these conferences like uh, Thriller Fest or Khan, or These for, for my genre, it's mystery thriller, crime thrillers, these type of things. And, and, and that's the best of the genre community, by the way because they're um, the people are really the you know the best, the top, you know, the lead childs, the Michael Connollys of the world will reach down and they will blurb new authors who come in and, and help them with their careers. And it's 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 a very giving environment, which is not like Hollywood. Hollywood is not a giving environment. You know, you're pretty much on your own in Hollywood. Um, so um, uh. <laughs>
0: what are we talking about? <laughs> well, we're just we're just uh, reveling in the community of uh, writers and novelists and. Yeah, it it, it, it,
1: I was going with it though. Uh,
0: I liked I liked how that you brought up the generosity because I've no, I noticed that too. Just coming in, I, I kind of not really knowing what I was doing, and then writing, and then you know terrible for years, and then when I started getting a groove on, started reaching out to people, and people. Which is so nice, and it's because we're just all fans. Yeah. We're all fans of the genre. That, I, I mean, not the genre, the medium of novel writing.
1: Yeah, it's true. Uh, my experience is that authors are, are fans first, right, and they're readers first. Um, I know. What I was going to say, and what, you, what your question was, is kind of how did I reach out to people to be part of the of this collection? Um, it was a good question, and I can't believe I, I forgot it there. <laughs> um, what was the question? No, I'm just fucking with you. I just fucking with you. Yeah, yeah. The drinks haven't even started rolling yet. Um, no I um, so I had experience in, in Hollywood and, and everybody that I met as an author wanted a film deal or a TV deal. Um, that was like the, the you know the gold you know, ring here is to be able to get a, a, a film deal and everyone's thinking about you know oh maybe I'll have this uh, experience like um, Game of Thrones you know or Dexter and, 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 and you're the author of this phenomenal series or, or movie that comes out. Um, but I knew the flip side of that and I knew how, how rare that experience is. You, on the other hand, <laughs> had pretty much the best experience with your book and you wrote your book, you wrote your screenplay, you got it made, um, you were on the set, Eric Stoltz directed, it. I mean it's, it's it's an amazing experience and, and I would actually probably, if I do a Hollywood versus The Author Part 2, I'll ask you to to participate in that and tell us your story because I also want to hear success stories from people, you know, as opposed to the nightmare stories, and, and most of them are nightmare stories, um, and and that's kind of what I wanted to I wanted to reach out to the people who were successful and the people who were kind of just starting, but anyone that's had any kind of experience pitching to Hollywood or selling their 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 screen and you know TV and film rights to Hollywood, and and talk about what happens thereafter. You know, once you've sold it and you're all excited and this big producer brings you into the room and they say we love your your book and we love everything about it, everything is perfect, amazing, you spend half an hour talking about how much everyone loves your book, and then they say, okay, we just have a few notes, right? And then they hand you a 20-page document, single space, that was written by their intern, Um, and, and, and it changes everything. You know, and, and, and you know, from the setting and the central characters, and you know, suddenly your protagonist has gone from a from a woman to a man because they've got a relationship with Ryan Gosling, you know, and they want to they want a project for him, and you know, and, and they don't think it really should be a Nicole Kidman piece, and it's all then about making the project, and it's not about the 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 story that you've written, right, and. For better or worse, you know, sometimes it's the absolute right thing that should be done with that project because no 400-page book is going to be a 110-page screenplay without serious adaptation, um, preferably the producers and the screenwriters that get involved can understand the heart of the story and they can translate that into a new medium and, and while certain characters disappear and certain characters are combined and certain settings disappear and and new scenes are written that it still tells the same story from the heart of the author and the author can look back and say that was a beautiful adaptation. I think that's pretty rare. I, th- I think for the most part the author looks at it and says, what the fuck did you do to my book? Um, or it just disappears. Like the, When my books came out, when my first novel came out, uh, it was a uh, uh, boulevard. It was um, optioned by a big TV producer, TV and film producer. And I was very excited, you know, like, all right, this is great, yeah, right. And then, and he, what I didn't know, and I never met the guy, but I never sat in a room with this guy. It was option, you know, kind of a high level. I'm, I'm, you know, the distant author that should not get involved in anything. Um, and he, what I discovered later is that he had purchased it f- to work on with a, for a director that he was close to, a big TV director. And, and then there was a falling out somehow between the two of them that I didn't know about. And so he basically held on to the option for a year and a half. And he couldn't really do anything with it, and the director couldn't do anything with it because they brought it together, you know. Yeah. So they couldn't, like, if they shopped it, I think, outside of their little, their their, their unit, um, then they would have legal issues probably. So, But, but all this is unbeknownst to me. I'm just kind of waiting for this shit to go down. Yeah. And then at some point the, the option rights come back to me, right. But then it's like a year and a half later, and the heat, you know, that comes from going out with a project initially... Uh, and everyone, you know, high, uh, Hollywood is high school, right, with money, and so everyone wants what, what everyone else, what you think everyone else wants, right, so like like your your project is most important the week it comes out, right, whether it's a screenplay or a, a novel, or whatever. People are very excited because you don't know who's going after it, you know, everybody wants what everyone else is, is interested in. Um, so if a project's been around for a year and a half and nothing's happened to it, no one's gonna even look at it, right? So I had to kind of start over, and, and so I, I could write that story for Hollywood versus The Author, um, uh, but I let other people write that kind of story. Uh, and so, so, the, so I, there was a certain point where I thought, you know what, I want to I wanna write something where people can really see what it's like. You know, the full gamut of the positive and the negative of being an author, trying to get your, your film rights sold and your, and your films made in Hollywood. And uh, and I just started reaching out to people, um, and some some authors didn't really want to play because they thought they didn't want to bite the hand that feeds them, you know, because they've got they have things in play right there, and they didn't want to name names, they didn't want to be kind of pushed aside, which can happen. Um, and then there's others who said, yeah, I'll absolutely tell you my story, and and you know, uh, people like Michael Connelly uh, contributed, and I was, and no no one was getting paid for this. It's all on the back end, you know, and no books make money, so. There is, you know, the only reason to do this is to is to um, promote yourself and your work, uh, which Michael Connelly doesn't need to do, um, or to just kind of be helpful and let people kind of see, you know, what you're doing and, and get a little look into this world. Um, Tess Gerritsen wrote an amazing. If you haven't read hers yet, it's pretty intense. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, I just
0: watched Gravity for the first time like a week ago. And then, and then that story dropped because I just watched Ro- I watched Roma about uh, two months ago, which I loved. I flipped out. Director?
1: Alphonse Cuarón, yeah. Yeah. yeah, fantastic director. It's
0: my favorite. I, I that's I think it's my favorite film so far this year. That and um, sorry to bother you.
1: I don't know. Sorry to bother you.
0: Uh, that's the one. Uh, boots. Whoa! I forgot what his name is. He's from San Francisco. I mean uh, Oakland. Um, and it is about the telemarketer and Danny Glover's is in it. And, uh, not not. I forget what the, I'm gonna get them all mixed up, so we'll just uh, we'll just pretend like that didn't happen on the <laughs> microphone. No, no, I, 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 we leave all the warts and all in here. So, <laughs> um, where were we at before I went on my uh, my journey
1: through? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and your tangent. Whoa! <laughs> I, I love that we. I think we have. If we sat here and talked for for five hours, I think. Well, we'd that's the out. plan. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm I'm up for it, man. I just think that we we're gonna have so many. Connected points where we where we're familiar with people that we know. I mean, like we just mentioned, UCR crowd. I don't know if you know Colby Bazell, who lived in San Francisco for a while. He also went to UCR, but he's a uh, a writer. He was a um, in the Iraq uh, war and wrote about that. He wrote a book called um, uh, Oh, what was it? Um, uh, I forgot what it was called. It'll come to me at a certain point. But but he's an interesting guy because he was a soldier. Um, a, a boots on the ground soldier, and he started writing a blog under a different name, and and he started getting really popular right from the front lines. And, and his wow. superiors didn't know anything about it until uh, there was a story that broke in like the Washington, you know, Post or something, or and um, and suddenly his superiors saw that he had this whole life going on as a, as a blogger, and and he got a book deal, and he got an agent, and then he came out with his, uh, um, it's got something like a. a ton, uh, Killing time in Iraq—that's what it's called. Killing time in Iraq, really? oh, time in Iraq. I yeah. But anyway, I, and, and he lived in San Francisco, and, and so I'm just kind of thinking of some of the things people we might know in common, and and the authors that we might read, you know, yeah, yeah, together. Yeah. Bukowski, are you a Bukowski
0: fan? Uh, the, I mean, when I was when I was 22 and going to the library every night because I thought I discovered something. I, I discovered oil, you know. <laughs> so yeah, Bukowski was on. Where I was just like, wait. Reading is fun. I don't get this. This isn't about how I'm going to die in Armageddon. No. So, it was, uh, yeah, Bukowski was very,
1: I, was, I went nuts over him. Who, so, who are your other authors that you like to read or that inf- have influenced you?
0: Uh, Stephen J. Schwartz. <laughs> 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 uh, Newton Hampson. Uh, Newton Hampson, um a Norwegian writer. He wrote a book called Hunger. And that re- that's the book that I read and I went, I think I'm a writer. Really? And then it took you know another ten years to get anything published, but
1: yeah. Uh, so okay, I'm gonna have to get that information from you so I yeah. can read that. Yeah, I've not heard of him, but sounds cool. How about any other uh, U.S. authors? Do you know um, that? Um
0: <laughs> hey, this is my podcast. Know, you're, you're, you're asking me? No, I'm messing. I'm, I'm messing with you. Okay, like you. Um, I don't know. You know, God, trying to bring it to like the U.S. authors. I'm fans of my friends, and then I'm. Like, the, the one, like, author I've loved for years is Michelle Walbeck who wrote a submission and the Elementary Particles. But that's French. Oh, okay. So so I, how, how do I bring it back here? Who do you, do you
1: read, um, I noticed that you know Jim Brown, James Brown, right? Because uh, I saw uh, a comment from you on his, when he was promoting Hollywood as the author, he's one of the authors in the book. Oh, okay. And James Brown, he teaches at uh, Cal State Bernardino, but he's written, his books he's written are called... Um, uh, uh, diary, uh, Los Angeles diary. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and this river. Yeah. And he's, uh, if you haven't read his work, uh, read the Los Angeles diaries. It's,
0: I think I have that. I just haven't read it yet. Yeah. It,
1: it's right. fantastic. He's one of my favorite authors actually. And, um, I mean, to me, he writes like John Fonte, you yeah. know, yeah. Oh, you I know, know well, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. And I found out about Fonte. I thought, I, I thought I struck more oil. I was yeah. just like, what the hell well, is this?
1: Bukowski leads you in that direction? Cause yeah. that's his, exactly. right. Right. Yeah, yeah. Do you ever read uh, Brotherhood of the Grape? That, that's my favorite Fonte. Really? Yeah.
0: Is that a part of the uh, band? is it Band No? It's not part of the No. The
1: band. Okay. Yeah. No. And I'm not a big fan of uh Ask the Dust actually. Um, I'm uh, I'm a I'm a bigger fan of Brotherhood of the Grape which is which is like it's comedic. It's funny and it's and it's a great picture of like three generations of Italian society and and uh and you know him and his father and uh, and it's it's just really really well written, you know.
0: Uh, did you know his son Dan? Oh, uh,
1: no, no. I think I might have read some of his. I think I bumped into his work a few years ago. But. He
0: was he was such a sweet guy. I was running
1: this little webzine years ago called
0: Cherry Bleeds, and I asked him. I reached out and asked him if he would contribute poetry, and right away he did. And then we were both teaching at UCLA Extension together before he died. I had that little bit of time with him, which was. I was just like, wow! Just, it's just so interesting that you get, you know, you get to, you get to meet, it's, you get to meet your heroes yeah. as writers. If your, if your heroes are writers, it's kind of easier to meet <laughs> them. It's,
1: it's easier now than ever, um, because you can fucking Facebook them. You know, it's. We didn't have this when I was a kid. I, I loved science fiction. I loved this one writer called Clifford D. Simak. You know, and and when I and I wrote letters to to authors that I liked and. Um, and it would take like six months for you to, you, you mail a letter out to the publisher. Right. If the publisher ever got it and didn't throw it away, they'd send it off to the writer's agent. And if the agent got around to it, he'd send it to the writer. And then, you know, then the writer would be like shocked, like someone notices I exist. And then they would write a letter. And, and so I actually, when I was 14, I was making films and I, and I asked for the, the rights to this author's, one of his books. And I sent him a letter and he sent me back a letter, he got like six months later. And I was just excited to get a letter from him, right? But he said that he couldn't give me the rights because if you you, you, you sell rights, you don't just give rights away. And if you were to give it to me, then he couldn't give it to anybody else. And and I and it was interesting. It was like my first education in in how this kind of thing works, you know. Um, but you know, there are so many authors that I wish I I wish I would have met John Updike before he died. I wish I would have met Bukowski. Um, I've been able to meet uh, Chuck Polanik, which is cool, a couple of times. Yeah, he
0: was, he was one of my first interviews before I called it this before I called it drinks with Tony, because they didn't know it. They the publicist was like, "What are you doing?" And it wasn't even there was no word for podcast yet, so I was just like, "It's the ble- it's, cherry bleeds was the so it was like I'm doing the cherry bleeds web stream," and they're like, "Okay, well, do you want to uh, have lunch with Chuck Polanik?" I'm like, "Yeah," <laughs> that was like that was like my first author interview.
1: So. When I, have like, when I kind of lose my, my direction as a writer, I read a couple of things. I read Bukowski to get kind of centered, and then I read Fight Club again. And I've read Fight Club like eight times now. And, and I think it's brilliant. I think it's really, it's one of my very favorite novels ever.
0: And, and what Bukowski is in, in your top, uh, the, the ones that you go to the most?
1: Um, Ham on Rye, I think oh, yeah. is, is my, I like his novels. Um, so any of his novels except for Pulp which is his last one which yeah, is a weird I, yeah
0: I remember reading that because that was that came out like a couple years after he died and I was just kind of like or a year or so I can't remember I was just kind of like
1: uh yeah it's like, it was like a failed experiment of his yeah. um but everything else of his and Hammond Rye is my favorite because it feels like the most autobiographical and goes back to his early youth but women Hollywood actually the, for the book Hollywood I had the rights to, to publish republish a couple of chapters for, for Hollywood versus the author but Something didn't work out, so we didn't get it, but, but you know, that was about the making of Barfly. So that had some great, you know, sh- stories about the chaos in, involved in making that film, too. Um, Factotum. Um,
0: Factotum. How did you, know, did you get to see uh, Bantam Hammer did uh, the with with Matt Dillon on that movie? Did you get to see that? Yeah,
1: I did. I did see that, yeah. I liked it, but I, I don't think it really stood out in my mind. I mean, it's been years since I've seen it. Um, and I liked it, but it didn't jump out as like, you know, not like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I thought was a great adaptation, you know, of the Henry S. Thompson.
0: Well, Ben Tammer's a Norwegian dude, so I, I think what I think I liked it because my, my mom's from Norway, so it okay. it kind of gave Bukowski a Norwegian take, where it's like, well, you, we go crazy like this. You're, you know, I can't even do a good Norwegian accent. It was really? like, Norwegian. you've oh, yeah, got to get the accent down. I know, I know. I, yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just got my California accent, and everyone laughs. That's all. <laughs> And then I put a microphone on my face, and then they laugh even
1: more. I love what you're doing. I love the fact that you're doing these interviews, and you're out there working it, and then you've got your movie out now. That's very cool. It looks so good from where you're sitting, I'm sure. <laughs> you're
0: living the dream. I don't know. Sometimes i got to tell you, well, um, yeah, if, if you do a, a second edition, I would love to be a part of it. Um, but what did you say so we can get that for sure?
1: Uh was it, were we talking about something?
0: Yeah, yeah, you uh yeah, if if we get a second edition, uh,
1: Sorry, valet's here. I've got to go.
0: Okay. <laughs> you're good at this. You're really good at this. Okay, let's go back a bit. Um cuz I just lost track of what thought cuz that was funny. Um you're getting me back for uh for sneaking up behind hey, you me. when I found you. <laughs> hey Tony, where are you? I'm like
1: yeah. On, the, on your cell phone, I'm like he's not here. I've, 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 I've scouted this entire restaurant. You know, I was bummed out because I was almost late and I can't find him. I'm gonna call this motherfucker and where is he? And then I hear my behind my my ear. I'm, uh, who's calling? I guess he had to be there.
0: Yeah, it was hilarious to us. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's really intriguing let's go back to uh, when you asked for the book for the film rights when you were fourteen. You actually had your first development meeting as a fourteen year old Did you know that you would go that It's kind of like a development meeting of let me acquire these rights
1: yeah um, well i didn't know what I was i didn't even know I was asking for the rights. I was just asking the author if I could make a movie out of his out of his book and and I had a buddy. Uh, it's my, my best friend, in, in since I was a kid growing up, and when his name is uh, Seth Garden Schwartz. So we were Schwartz and Garden Schwartz Productions, which is which is. And he he said, why is, why isn't it Garden Schwartz and Schwartz? And I said, because that didn't sound right. It's got to be a Schwartz uh, Schwartz Garden Schwartz. See how that sounds? And he goes, yeah, I guess you're right. And I'm like, ah, my name's first. But anyway, so we made films, and um, and I had this one really cool film that a uh, book that I read by Clifford Simonic that that, um, that I actually wrote a screenplay for. And um, and then I then I contacted him and you know and, and just to see and if I could make the movie and you know he didn't give me the rights I don't know if I would have made the movie anyway we were, we were working in Super 8 without sound you know it's like it was not easy to make even a short three minute film because you didn't know what you'd have to shoot. And you didn't know what you had until it came back from being processed which in albuquerque new mexico i'd have to send it to a lab in new york and it had to come back and then i'd look and see if it's all black that means oh i guess i had the lens cap on or whatever you know and so then i would have to reshoot so it's not like it is today um and then when you wanted to edit something i had this little room in my parents my parents had this room that they had built that was supposed to turn into a sauna at some point, which they never did. So it was just this little airless pocket that I would go into and I would edit these Super 8 films and I'd use this toxic cement, editing cement, to, to, to edit little little you know pieces of film together, and tiny film at Super 8, right? And you know, I'd be in there for eight hours, and I'd come out like completely woozy and like uh, you know, feeling sick to my stomach from the fumes. Um, but it was just not easy to make films that way. And my God, I wish if I'd grown up in this era when you when you can make a feature film off of your iPhone and you could edit it on your Mac and you can distribute it on YouTube, you know, I, I might have been doing something kind of cool. Um,
0: I see. I try. I think about that a lot because I think about. I like, sometimes I really like limitations of process because then it, it challenges us to grab what we need. So if we yeah. know that, if we know we have to grab something and th- there's, there's more of a um, urgency there, that, then that I think we get a different feel than if you could do 40 takes and oh, I don't look so good from this side. And,
1: it's true. Yeah, actually, actually learned it when I was in film school I was shooting the film on 16. I had this old um, uh, editor, old Italian editor from Universal Studios who was donating his time editing. It. So he, so he edited on a flatbed, you know, a Moviola and then a flatbed. And so you know, you'd go in and he would he would assemble a scene and, and he'd ask me my opinion and I would give him some feedback and then he'd say, "Okay, come back in 3 hours." Right? He wouldn't show me like 10 different versions of a scene, and and he wouldn't do it like right when I'm standing there. It would take three hours for him to go and reassemble, and I'd have to really, really think about that scene and what it would look like if if, if one shot was shaved by three seconds, right? And if a different shot replaced a shot. You know, you'd really have to try to keep that in your head in a way that that we don't have to do right now, and so, so yeah, you were much more part of the process of creating this this vision. And I come back three hours later, and I look at it, and then I have to have him make another comment, right? And and it was a beautiful process. I mean, I do miss that, you know.
0: And and that's why that's why we all smoke cigarettes, because you had to take a cigarette break. That's
1: true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have started smoking, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's even me with uh, radio because I got into it when I was doing college radio and we were everything was on reel to reel, so we were we were cutting all our spots on reel to reel, splicing, cut you know had cuts on my fingers all the time, all the tapes up with the little numbers on them, having the logbook handwritten and I, I just there's something kind of romantic about being there and that before we can do it on a Mac. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. And I and I don't uh, I still feel like someday I'm gonna. Jump into go back into making films, um, and get whatever they're using now—a red camera or whatever it is that you know—and and, um, maybe if I'm affiliated with the school, if I'm right now I'm, I teach at Emerson College, and at some point I want to teach creative writing and, and um, literature, and, and kind of get embedded into a film department somewhere, and then just start getting access to equipment and making some short films. And I don't know—that's just still that's still ahead of me, you know, yet to come, but. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to be able to to use the tools that are available now and really make some cool stuff. I mean, I, there's a lot of stuff that I made that were just that disappeared because I shot on 16 or I shot on 35. And I shot a, a, a half hour film on 35 that I just never finished, you know, and it was like it was a big film. I had you know it was a 15 day production and we had like a 60 person crew and everyone was donating their time. And, you know, it's like the negative is still a technicolor, you know, and the and all the, the, the positive is, you know, that we're, the working cut, you know, is just all disappeared somewhere else. And, and and that was years ago. And it just it was too ambitious, too big a project, too expensive to keep going. You know?
0: Going back to because uh, because we're, we're we're sitting here romancing about uh, flatbeds and uh, and, you know, film
1: man. Yeah, yeah.
0: But uh, there that the, you talk about the Lumiere um, okay. guys, where I mean, the real back in the day when people were like you kids aren't going to make anything out of this crap. It's about still photos.
1: Right, right. Yeah. No, that's what actually um I'm uh, I'm very proud of the I thought the the hardest part for me putting this compilation together was writing would be writing an introduction and try to capture the history of you know of the author's experience in Hollywood and how how writing began and how film began and how you know the two kind of ultimately came together where where filmmakers needed a film writer you know and what did that look like um, and, and how that started with you know vaudeville you know basically just filming plays you know filming silly stuff and then you know the, the, the people like Charlie Chaplin coming in and Buster Keaton and making it a little bit more more emotive. Um, but there was still silent, the silent era. So a writer, you know, can kind of write what happens and can write these little placards that, you know, had a little dialogue that was inserted in between the shots cause there was no sound. And then, and then when the talkies came around that really moved things forward to where film could actually be something different and great. It didn't have to be just a, a play that was shot from the center of the, of the theater. It can, you know, well already, you know, early films were showing with the, the movement of the camera and the camera can be in a close-up and it can be in a distance and it could take the viewer where the director wanted the viewer to go very much like a novel in a novel you can you take the reader where you want the reader to go uh, in a way that a play can't you know even because you're you're stuck viewing the play from one perspective um, so the combination then of the of the writing and the dialogue and sound and then bringing in great stories to the processes was this wonderful evolution of film that turned into the golden era of Hollywood where we have these beautiful films. I mean, they made a lot of shit, too, because they were making a lot. I mean, they they were pumping out so much stuff that, that, you know, 90% of their stuff could be shit so that 10% could be brilliant, right? With great directors and great writers um, and these authors who, you know, were you know William Faulkner and, and, and whom else, whoever else, that were great authors that were that were picked because of their, um, their, uh, their authority in their industry, you know, it was just very exciting for them to be part of that because in, you know, one movie can pay them, you know, two years, five years worth of what they would make as an author, you know, but uh, most of them didn't understand what it was to, to adapt, to translate their novel into this new medium and many of them hated it. Faulkner, um, uh, hated it, you know, he couldn't do it. And, And there's some good stories I've got in the introduction of, um, of others, um, uh, who were um, oh god the classic uh, the Billy Wilder and um, I forgot my 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 mind's going as far as I can't remember but you know there's these these classic authors who who hated the process then some of them figured it out some of them some of them got it right and, and became successful screenwriters as well as as novelists
0: yeah I mean when I had to do the my adaptation of Jesus Jerk I had to learn on the fly I had taken screenwriting workshops and directed really shitty short films. Before but I had to learn on the I had to learn fast how to pull what I needed out of
1: this. So that's, so here's a question. How did you get? Did you just write a spec screenplay from your novel or did the novel write sell and Someone wanted to make the film and then you said yeah, I want to write the screenplay
0: Well, um the the no- <laughs> when you say the word sell it kind of no. brings up the idea that I made money
1: right. no, I'm talking like, I'm talking like for a dollar Right?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. They, at first, it went to um, a producer who, I, who I, I worked with for a while, Jamie Patrickoff. He was with Hunting Lane Films, uh, so we, he wanted to work on a TV series version of it. And I got to he, that was my first experience working with a producer and getting notes, and working on that. And then that option ran out. And then through a friend of a friend, um, if I if I remember the story right, it was. Eric was uh, looking for someone who could write really good young adult characters for a sci fi type alien film that they weren't sure what they were going to do yet. Yeah. So that he was offered my book to, to see if he wanted to work with me. As
1: a writer for that project. Right. Yeah.
0: And then he read the book and went, Oh, we have our alien film. I knew nothing about the Jehovah's Witnesses, and here it is. So that There's
1: was. the alien film right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And,
0: uh, so that's kind of just how that works. So, and, uh, so, and then after that, they were like, All right, Eric. Wants you to write it so you don't lose the tone because that was the thing. That doesn't. It the tone had to stay. We're not making fun of the. We're not making fun of
1: this, but it's funny. So. So you really did have the best experience that that anyone can have. I had the best
0: experience I will ever ever have, and I know that. That's and I and yeah. So yeah. Unfortunately, I'm not going to. If if I'm on your volume two, I'm I'm not. I'm going to be the guy to call to go. And we need the one guy that's got the
1: good yeah. experience. We've got a couple in this collection: no, no, and know, Lee Goldberg, Lee Goldberg, was, was, and, and T. Jefferson Parker. And yeah. you know, these guys seem to have pretty damn good experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized, okay, I guess some people did, you know, have an experience different than mine. So I should show that, you know.
0: But you, but you haven't seen my car or where I live. Yeah. So there's that,
1: there's that situation too. I, I, and we all go through that too. And that's why I had to get a day job so that I can send my kids to college and you know, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Afford to pay for, for coffee, even though you paid for the coffee, but... Um.
0: Shh, I don't do it every time, man.
1: Oh, great, now I'm stuck. It, it's coffee, though. It's not like you're paying for the, for the martinis. So,
0: it, it depends what time. It depends what time it's at. <laughs> one,
1: one. I, I will. We won't talk about. It. It's called drinks of Tony. It really is. It is. It is drinks. We are drinking. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I'm glad it's coffee because although it does not seem like I, I need the, the pick me up because um, I'm a little bit fucking um, uh, uh, manic at the moment. Um, if I'd had even one drink, I would have put me right to sleep. So. I might have tried to put the have a drink just to kind of, you know, go with the flow of the of the of the, you know, the tone of the the, the, the the podcast, but then you would be like nudging me all the time saying, "Steve, come on, wake up."
0: It's it's just really funny. So, well, speaking of that, some people have thought, "Oh, no, I don't want to come on your podcast if they're sober," you know, and, and but it's like
1: that too. Yeah. I mean there could be there could be people in AA or something that would take right. offense to that, right?
0: Yeah, and I, I I've gotten a few comments, but then I've had like Jerry Stahl come in the studio like three times in San Francisco.
1: He knows what's going on. He's just like you know, I love Jerry Stahl. He's great. He's another influence too. Yeah. I think he's really neat. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: And, uh, he gave me uh because I we were when I was telling him he's like well do you like the cut? I saw a rough cut, you know he's like do you like the cut? I'm like yeah it's really good. And he's like, "Did you make any money?" I'm like, "No." And he's like, "Do you have any mouths to feed?" And I'm like, "No." And he's like, "Well, you just like, you just had you just had the movie dream." And I'm like, "What?" I'm like, "No, no, you're the guy that I want to be." And he's like,
1: <laughs> "No, it it really is you. If you can, and this is this is great for you because now this is a precedent that that allows you to negotiate for the things that come after this. You have now been the the sole screenwriter, you know, for a film that was made, directed by Eric Stoltz, it, it, on Amazon, produced really this is the this is the stepping stone to the next thing that you want to do that you at some point you may want to direct something and you'll have a little bit of clout to be able to do that you know
0: i have no idea how to do that but we'll we'll see what happens when we get there i just keep writing, keep writing. and just sit in my corner yeah. exactly. <laughs> if i if i knew how to take a meeting maybe that would that would work out but it's like
1: it's just like this and and, and it's what's important is that is that you work with people who you can respect who see your vision um that that's that's where it's all at. And you know what's weird is when when your book like my book went out through CAA to all their top clients, right? And I was so distant from this process that I never met any of these people that they sent it to. You know, they had, you know, top showrunners and producers and stuff and even the guy who optioned my book for a year and a half, I never met him, right? which is really unfortunate because there's, you don't get the opportunity to have a shared vision. They're basically just buying a, a concept, a property, and they're saying, well, we're going to do whatever we want with this property. We've now bought the rights for practically nothing, you know, because it's just an option. Um, and, uh, and, and it doesn't really matter what the author has to say about it because he's not part of it anymore. It's like, I'm going get to a, get a screenwriter, I'm going to get a showrunner, whatever, and, and we're going we're to make this into something, and the author will be damn happy that it's happening, right? And that's and a lot of authors are very cool with that. They don't want to learn about the process. They just want to see you know their films get their yeah. books get made into TV or film. Um, I've I've d- decided that I want to be very involved now, and I've, I've actually um, uh, and a kind of interesting thing happened um, uh, about a year ago. I got an email from a film director in, in Vancouver who works on uh, the TV series Lucifer, okay. and and he um, and he wanted to shoot a, f- uh, a short film for his reel to take to festivals. And he asked um, the showrunner on Lucifer if, if, if she would write something for him, because they were friends. And so she said, oh, yeah, I'll write you a little short film based on this book I, I read called Boulevard. And so she wrote this, this short, and, uh, and then they realized they had to just probably get permission from the authors, so they contacted me, and I said, absolutely. And so over the summer, uh, this last summer, I went to Vancouver and got to be on set, and they're shooting this film, and it was great, I loved it. Um, but I also realized, why am I, I've been waiting for years for a showrunner, for someone to, to write, you know, either a feature script or the um, uh, a TV pilot, and TV's not really my world, so I was waiting for basically someone else to come in and, and take over that, and then I realized why the why am I waiting? So I, I wrote a, a pilot for for Boulevard over the summer, and I'm, I'm and then now I'm just selectively going out to showrunners who I have a, a personal connection with. Because it's it's all about, as, as I mentioned in the in the intro to to the to the collection here, it's elements. You know, I'm not a strong enough element to to get this series off the ground. You know, um, I've tried to pitch it before on my own to HBO and Showtime and different places, and although people have liked the the idea, they like the book. It's, they're they're risking too much to stick their neck out on just an author. You know, they need to have a, a big producer, a big star. Somebody has to be attached to the project. And so, you know, one, hopefully I will get either this showrunner from Lucifer involved and we can partner up, um, or another showrunner. And, and, um, and, and I just, I want to be part of the process now. I don't want to be the author that, that, that closes his eyes and say, I hope it works. I, I wrote the pilot, I want to be, you know, the, the central person on the creative team. I want to be the person they turn to when they're asking questions on set, you know, uh, about story. Um, and I might do what you do. If it's, if it's not right for TV, I'm, I'll try to play it out for TV as a series. And if it's not right for TV, I'll write it as a feature, and then I'll try that route. You
0: know? uh, let me tell you, the next film that I work on, I'm going to be like, what it needs to be a lady that's fine what what else do you need i love this check do you have another check (laughs) because i feel like but they but i loved being a part of that process i mean it was to the point where i got you know i was just like i was trying to listen to eric's directions to the actors just because i just wanted to grab everything i'm like looking at the lighting guys i'm looking at everything just going trying to soak in as much knowledge you know and then the actors i'm going Wow, you said that way better than I ever thought anybody could say that in my
1: life. You know? Yeah, I lo- and that's that's how I felt when I um, when they shot this short. Um, a guy named Dylan Neal is uh, is the actor who plays who plays the character Hayden Glass in, in from my books, and he was so good. Just watching him, every scene. I mean, it's when you when you work with a really good actor, when you get to observe that, and you see someone who's so comfortable at their craft. Um, and they know, like Dylan knows, what the camera sees when the camera's on him. You know, he'll know what. And you have different lenses, so you have different, you know, aspects and you know of the of the of the frame. But he's aware of who's in the scene with them in the frame, and he he positions himself so that he's aware of the composition of the frame itself, and 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 aware of who's in the scene, so to make sure that they get become a part of the scene too. And it's just it was. Beautiful to watch. I love watching really great actors being directed well too. Um, yeah, I love that experience. And you know, you need to be on a feature, you know, on your own project, watching that occur. I would I would recommend that um, for you, uh, really stick to your guns on everything you do from now on. And because people are going to come to you for your vision, and and if if someone says, hey, we're going to want we want to make your character a, a female or a male or whatever and like that. You, I, I think you might be best off saying, you know what, I don't think that's right for, for this story. And, and and A, you'll get a lot of respect. There's the power of saying no in Hollywood. It's very important. And, and B, you might discover that they weren't the right ones to, to, to do this project with the beginning. If they didn't get that basic thing of, of whose story it is that's being told, you know, then they're not the right ones. And you're going to find somebody in the process that will really respect your vision. You know?
0: I, yeah, I, I kind of... Being a little bit facetious, like the way I write screenplays is the worst way possible because I write them like a novel first, and then I—it's I, like—and then I have to adapt what I wrote to the other—the uh, the, the kid who plays the lead in Jesus Jerk, uh, Sasha Fellman. I'm working with him on something right now at short, and um, it's—you know—they're like waiting for the rewrite, and they're like, "Okay, whatever." Tony's process—he does this weird thing where he has to go handwriter. You know, a short story for like three pages of, you know, whatever. But, yeah, my, my process is not fast. I wish it was faster. But, um,
1: yeah, if your producers are cool with that and if you can hit a particular deadline and sometimes you don't hit it, it's still, if they're committed to you, it's still all right. They want the best work they can get. Right, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, how, now, when did you start teaching and what was it? Did Have you always taught or was that something? Oh, what? What did what was the transition like to I'm um, well not transition but what was it like to start teaching and what did, did you like learn from uh, the experience of teaching
1: um, so I, I, uh, the reason I wanted to teach is because if, if all I wanted to really do was write I want to write and want to make films and, and basically write novels you know um, but I have to have a day job, I have to kind of pay the bills, and so I was thinking, well, if I'm going to have a day job, I want to do something that I really will like, which, which is teaching, so that I'm, I'm me 24-7 as opposed to, you know, you know, 60 hours a week I'm somebody else, and then the, and the rest of the time I'm me. Um, so that's why I decided to go back to, to school at to UC Riverside, and, and they've had a phenomenal uh, MFA program that's a low residency, so you can do it mostly online, and then you go to residency, you know, a couple times a year. Um, are, are you
0: going to the party? They have a party yeah, coming. Are yeah.
1: you yeah. going to go there? No, I'm not, I, I can't. I got, to, I got too much
0: to do and I got to get up to SF. But yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah so that's pretty cool. It's their 10-year party. Yeah, and yeah. and um, Liska sh- will probably be there, I'm sure. Um, and, uh, and I'll be teaching there too, which is kind of cool too. So, so the reason I went to get the MFA was so that I can transition to teaching. Um, I had hoped to teach um, creative writing and literature, you know, and kind of avoid anything in film. It's just like because film was like uh, I'm, I'm kind of so over it Hollywood in a way, um, and I don't even really want to teach screenwriting because it, it, I feel like most people who are writing screenplays or they're all they, they're all writing for the wrong reasons. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. They're just trying to get famous. They're trying to you know be big. You know, and, and it's like a lot of screenwriters aren't. Authors are different. Authors are really committed to story. They really want to tell a beautiful story, and it, regardless of money, right and um, uh, but a screenwriter, they come from all different shapes and forms, and, and they're usually trying to think of, of being big in Hollywood, and so I, did, I don't really want to teach screenwriting. Um, so I was looking for this kind of, right after I got my degree, I started kind of, you know, poking around and in in, in asking people what's available, and I had, a, I had a friend who teaches at Emerson in Los Angeles, which has got a great film school, and they had a position open there, and so um, I was hired there, which was... Which is great because my first gig, you know, right out of getting my MFA, is with a, 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 a well, a, a great school. Um, but it's it's not only is it is it film, but it's it's basically a supporting role um, for their seniors who come from Boston and they come to the Hollywood School, which is which is right in the center of Hollywood. So it's like you can see the Hollywood sign from the windows, right? And they live there on this this really cool building, and they. They live on the Yeah, it's, it's such a, it's, this building is unbelievable, it's really neat. Um, and then they, and what it is, it supports their internships. They all take internships in the industry and, and the Emerson alumni are everywhere. Um, and they, and they support this strong internship program. So these kids come in and they start interning at Fox and Sony and, WME, you know, so all the top agencies, the top studios, um, from the top places like that, all the way down to just independent production companies, Red Wagon, um, and then uh, and then YouTube channels and whatever it is they get, it's Fox Sports, you know, this. So they all get these different internships, and the class that I teach is basically a support class, a supporting class to help them succeed at their internships, and ha- help them navigate their route through that until they graduate, and then where are they going to go from that point forward, and you know, so it's not, here I am again, you know, Hollywood stuff and I'm dealing with kids who are very eager and excited to get the hell out of school and into the real world. So in a sense, I'm teaching a class that's a drag on their momentum, <laughs> you know, because it's the academic portion of, they're now at these phenomenal internships and they're they're like skyrocketing ahead and this academic portion is saying, okay, now I want you to write a, a, an, a, an essay about, you know, this or that and, and turn it in, you know, by next week and and there's all this this paperwork involved, and so I'm trying to balance that. I've been doing this for a couple of years now, and I try to balance the academic part with the real world part so that they can just launch forward and, and have a great experience in Hollywood. Um, but ultimately, you know, I want to transition to to teaching at a, at a school where I can just focus on um, on, uh, on on creative writing and literature. That's what I'd love to teach, you know, while I write, you know. So.
0: I, I, you, there, is there an element of it where you also um, you teach them how to deal with personalities and how to in the or, or to, do you not go that deep into the? Um, I
1: mean, think that, that comes up. Um, you know, uh, it's um, it's interesting because coming from the the safety and the safe environment of a sc- of university, uh, they're used to uh, things where um, the school is really really uh, aware of. Taking care of the student so that the student is not uh, offended in any shape, way, shape, or form, right? So that they, they so the kids
0: need to be offended, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. I'm offended right now by that.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, they will get offended <laughs> when they go into Hollywood. So there is that kind of preparation of, you know, I taught a a, a class during, you know, one of my semesters on Me Too. You know and what was going on because that was starting to happen you know harvey weinstein you yeah. know so here are these students coming in from boston into hollywood and suddenly they're in this harvey weinstein world it's 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 erupting it's been there for a long time but now it's suddenly people are aware of it right so so this in when you're in a university system it's very uh, aware of that and in 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 and there are people there a support team of people if any student is offended by anything you know it's a me too kind of environment you know they're there they're on it right you know uh, title nine and you know everything is very very um, there to protect the students but in Hollywood you don't get that man it's the real world Um, and uh, and you have to try to navigate that you know and so that's some of the things we we kind of discuss is that networking uh, holding on your dreams not getting lost in the Hollywood system if you're if you really want to be a writer or film director you can get lost in, in a position that you're put in at a production company or a studio, and 10 years down the road you realize, wow, I didn't write that screenplay I always wanted to write. Yeah, you know. it's
0: like the people who are like, I can't wait to retire from my job so I can write a novel. And it's like, uh, no, no, you, don't just, you just don't write a novel the minute you've never written anything before.
1: <laughs> well, I, and I, um, I had my day job when I wrote my first novel. It took me three and a half years to write that novel. Yeah. You know, it was every evening, every weekend, every holiday, every sick day, every vacation day was devoted to writing the novel. And and every evening from, you know, six PM until eleven PM when the cafe closed, you know, I was writing. And um that's what it took, three and a half years to write that first novel. Um, now,
0: you're, what you're describing to me doesn't sound like work, it sounds like the sexiest thing ever. That's, I love that life.
1: <laughs> well, I do love that, but that was after my day job. So that's after the day job. No, if it was just that, that's my most exciting thing I could ever do, right, is write like that. Uh, and I've had years like that where I can just do that full time, but now this is after the day job. This is after a 60 hour a week day job coming home. And I think
0: I just fell in love with you right
1: <laughs> It was it was but see what the sacrifice however is that I've got I'm a husband I've got two I had two young boys and so I was you know I was absent you know from a lot of their their life you know we try to drag them to the cafe while I'm riding, but it's not very fun to sit there and watch daddy ride for four hours in a cafe you know uh, at, at you know <laughs> at midnight or something so so I would love the writing to have supported my, me and my family. Um, and, and, and when I sold my first novel, I got a two-book deal, so I, got, I had to do the same I still couldn't get out of the day job. so I had to do what took me three and a half years I had to do it in one year now because I was on a contract, and I did that, and that was even harder, you know because I had a lot of research to do and, and is that the one that you went to North Beach in San Francisco yeah. and wrote along with the police? Yeah, it was great. I loved it. love it, Loved love it. Loved it. But then, and then I quit the day job after that because I had two novels out. I was writing my third novel. I just gotten a screenwriting assignment. Oddly enough, I finally got a screenwriting assignment. I had to write a novel to be able so for someone to say, "Hey, you could write a screenplay." I'd written ten feature screenplays before that, you know. Um, so and so, I was getting paid for the screenplay, not a lot, but something. So I quit the day job and spent a year, a little year and a half, just writing full time. <clears throat> before I had to go back and find a day job again because it wasn't, you know, it's not consistent. It couldn't support a family, you know. <clears throat> and my wife stayed home and homeschooled the boys and so you know it's you got be so you have
0: an amazing supportive wife as well
1: yeah she's great yeah. Yeah. yeah and she's actually a really great story editor too oh, cool. she reads all my work she gives me intense criticism <laughs> sometimes it's constructive criticism <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but no she's 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 uh, our story is pretty intense pretty fast if you ever get a chance you should look at um, I've got a a uh, an, uh, a um, article in Salon um, called "The Lie Detector Test That Saved My Marriage," okay. <laughs> and and it's uh, it's kind of about our experience together. And and you know, the, my first novel, Boulevard, and the character in the in the series um, is a, uh, a sex addicted uh, homicide detective, right? So I wasn't a homicide detective, <laughs> but there but I was on the flip side. So. The book, as your book comes out of your own life, right, Uh, having been a a Jehovah's Witness, right, okay, right, you know, so, um, you know, I I had a a sex addiction problem for many, many years, and I would would pick up, you know, I'd go to strip clubs and and go to massage parlors and things like this for many years, and and this kind of, this is before I wrote a novel, and, and while I was doing my day job, and I was very unhappy, and and um, when this kind of unraveled in my marriage and my wife found this out and we decided to try to make it work I, we got a therapy together, I went to the, the 12-step programs I got a sponsor, we worked really hard and she was, she was so supportive and she wanted to make this work and actually she felt that the person that I actually was that she didn't know was more interesting than the person she was married to right, so it suddenly sparked something in our relationship that as long as it was based on trust and I would change we would have a successful marriage, and it, and and this was 12 years ago or something. So we we, so then I started writing this novel about a character who was a sex addicted police detective, and what he what he had, he's in the 12 step program, and you know all these these things in in a, in, a, in a crime novel, right, in a thriller, and my wife started reading this stuff, and it was a lot of it was based on my experiences, right, and she she was blo- shocked for one. But she was also excited by it and she started pushing me harder to go deeper into some of these experiences, even though they were painful for her to, to read. She wanted me to go deeper and, 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 and bring these things out and make my, my novel really gritty and really psychological and, and tough. And um, so she read all my work and gave me good, great notes all the time and she was very much a part of the process. So it was a very strange, you know, collaboration in a sense in that she was both a victim of the things that I did and also a supportive member of the creative catharsis that came from that. You know, and so that's, you get a little bit, of, so, but to start that off, before she can trust me, she said, you have to take a lie detector test, you know, and tell me everything you've ever done and be absolutely honest, and if you lie, then, then, then I'm leaving you. And and so I it, like her. I, she's
0: amazing. Okay, keep yeah. going. I'm
1: and so this is something that she reserves the right. And I've had like five or six over the years. Anytime that she feels like that that that, that she that the trust might not be there, or she has to question it. And I haven't done this now for five or six years or so. So so in the first like you know four or five years, I was doing it kind of regularly. So I've done it probably five times um, until we got to a point where we're really comfortable. Um, but um, yeah, so that's that's why I wrote that that, that story um, about the lie detector test that saved my marriage because it really did it saved the marriage because it gave us a ground point where she said okay now now I believe what what you have to say and we can start from ground zero and build a relationship <clears throat> and that's and that's what we've done and now we're closer than we ever have been you know and the families and the family kids know all about this stuff and you know when I came out with the book I spoke a lot about that and. Um, and it, and it, and I get emails from people who are you know have any all kinds of addiction issues you know because the twelve step program you know uh, is it works for every kind of addiction and so I get people who read it and they feel especially the guys who are going through sexual addiction issues they it's real it's it's not bullshit you know so um, I know That's, it's
0: so. really cool because one you worked on it and there's was how it brought you together even more I I love hearing that because I I was married for thirteen years and divorced so whenever um that was a different situation cuz that was a Jehovah's Witness marriage so that kind of that died after like 4 years when i left i just didn't realize for another 9 <laughs> but uh, but um what was i saying i got all, i got on me but the i find that when people go through the conflict they become that that's kind of important that's what that's kind of important for like an amazing relationship to get through the conflict
1: yeah yeah well if you get a chance you read that article cuz it's pretty I stopped reading the comments. I've got like hundreds of comments on that, you know, and it's just, it's so divisive, you know, that I just go, you know what? Everyone's gonna have their own experience. You can't, you can't walk somebody, no one's experience is like our experience. We're, we're, you know, we're open to different things where, you know, where this can work, you know? Uh, and we go through, you know, went through marriage counseling together and we, and, and we check ourselves and, and we check in with each other and, and it works, but it, it's not gonna work the way we did it for a lot of people. You know, and it's just so that what I exp- what I expose is just my experience yeah. and it and it may or may not apply to anyone else's experience, yeah. you know But I find it
0: beautiful because you I find the there's a happy ending to it. Yeah There's still a shit ton of work probably constantly, but It's,
1: it's, it's, it's important work. My, my libido has, has dropped quite a bit, you know and my as I'm getting older and so there's less conflict yeah, but at the same time, there's more conflict because my wife's all, "Where's your libido?" Yeah,
0: that's when we just got to work harder. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah exactly. That's on us. <laughs> yeah, it's true, and it is on it is on us. But I'm I'm yeah I'm thankful I have a great marriage, a great kids that that, that have you know been able, to learn. and I'm really happy that we did because there was a moment when we could have gotten divorced. Very could have gone either way, and we we we've been together for 27 years now. You know so.
0: So you know the way. Another way you were looking at me when you were like, "Wow, you got to do your own book and your own screenplay, and you got to be on set." I'm looking at you like, "Wow, you got through the conflict in your marriage.
1: That's so rad." <laughs> it's pretty rare. I, I'm. I'm. I'm pretty. I'm, yeah and the fact that I've come away with our kids as close as we the family's so close you know they've gone to you know I started going to the L.A. Times Festival of Books and and I've been on panels every year I'm on a panel there and and I get to bring my kids and they've grown up there you know they've grown up you know in the green room and getting to to meet all these other authors and you know go right up and meet um, uh, uh um, Buzz Aldrin you know sitting at a table or James Elroy and and and, and have and, and to see this world of authors Um, it's it's it makes me very proud to know that we've we've given them this kind of education Um, and and as a family you know my boys are they're two years apart and they're best friends and and we're very very close in the family and and yeah I look back and I say you know that's one of the reasons why I've slowed down on my writing unfortunately um, is because uh, I realized that you know I only I could I have to work a day job to support the family and then if I want to write a novel it will take up all the rest of my time that i could be doing anything else living a life you know just eating and breathing you know if you're gonna write a novel while you've got a day job you know it's going to take all your time away from your wife your kids your you know everything else and and i did that for two novels you know for the boulevard and beat and after that i just i, I reprioritized re-prior- I my life so that my family was was a higher priority um but it slows down my, you know, I've been able to do projects like Hollywood versus the author, and I've been doing short stories, and I've, and I've judged um, the Edgar Awards, and I've judged the, the, the uh, book, L.A. Times Book Prize for a few years. So that's taken time, too. But, um, you know, it takes a certain kind of mental commitment to sit down and write a novel where you want to live it in your head 24-7. And, and I'm trying to get back to, to be able to do that without sacrificing, you know, my, my, my family relationships.
0: And how great is the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books? I, being in LA, like I tell everybody, I'm like, if you're an author,
1: you have to go. It's just, that's so amazing. It's Disneyland to me. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. it. It's the best time, best two days ever. And it requires a lot of work because I, I'm usually moderating a panel, so I have to read the, the, the books of the authors that are on my panel. I have to write up the questions. I have to keep it going. I have to make it interesting. So it's a lot of work. Um, but it's also, and especially if I've judged the, you know, that's like five months of my time reading, you know, a couple hundred novels and, and helping judge that. That's that's I'm not gonna do that again. I've done it for like three years in a row and it's like, okay, I I, I can't handle it anymore, you know. But um, but uh but being around that environment of authors, uh, it, it's it is it's it's heaven to me, you know. And in last year, in like a ten year period I've always gone, and then last year, um, I, uh, I had a trip, uh, took my family to Ireland and Scotland, and it was right during that. Every, you know, As far as the, the, the vacation time and the cost of the plane tickets and all that, it, it was right during the festival books. So I had to make this choice, and I thought, Ireland and Scotland, right? You know, so that's where I had to go, and so I've missed it for a year, and I really miss it. So I'm looking forward to it again this year. And you'll probably be there with
0: oh, definitely. I'm there every year at the end of April. Nothing gets me out of Los Angeles because I'm at.
1: I am there whether I'm on
0: panel or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: absolutely. Yeah. Well, hopefully we will be on a panel this yeah. year. Yeah.
0: We'll yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And usually, you know, usually I become uh, a plus one of someone, so I'm in there. I'm in that green room. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Get
1: in the green room. So we'll make sure that we get that great green room food you know
0: Man, my parent one when, when I did the Jesus jerk panel in 2010 when it was at UCLA campus I brought my parents down so they had my two wristbands and they didn't go to any panels they sat in the green room and ate all as much they were like this is the most amazing thing ever and I'm like guys I kinda gotta work here
1: so I'll see you later cause I'm doing stuff you know that th- you just reminded me of something that was very funny I was listening to a little bit of your interview with Liska Jacobs and you'd mentioned something about um, how before you published your book, you sent it to your mom, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah to get her, I don't know, her okay. I her, heard her, basically she's from in it. she's in it, yeah. right? And And then you said that when when you heard back from her, she thought this is accurate, right? Yeah. You've you've accurately, and that's pretty intense. She called so. it the
0: truth, okay. which, which is kind of also. Um, the, what they call the Jehovah's Witnesses inside the organization, they say it's the truth. And she she said, "You wrote the truth." So that kind of had a dual meaning. Of she gave it the okay of the Jehovah's Witness experience.
1: Love it, love it. So when I wrote my book about the sex addicted police detective, yeah. <laughs> and my mom, you know, I didn't send it to her beforehand. And there's no mother character in there, but you know, she she knew what was going on with me with my addiction, and everything like that, and how it almost destroyed the marriage and all that. So when um when I had my book lunch from Book Soup and I had you know, 70 people, you know, in attendance, all these people from, you know, all my life had come for this thing. And my mom flew out to be part of this, you know, (laughs) when people asked her, what do you think about your son's book? You know, the thing she said was, I'm not responsible. (laughs) Mom, if you're listening, you are responsible. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hold it against her. I know that, but it's just, it's just, it's funny because, you know, it's a different attitude, you know, and it was a very scary thing to come out with that kind of shit. I thought I'd be a pariah, you know. And and instead, when I talk about this at, at, at uh, on panels and conferences, um, uh, it uh, it people really opened up because it i was being very vulnerable. And uh, and in the character in the book, uh, trying to get it published initially, there are a lot of publishers that that, that, that love the writing, but were afraid of the character and they turned it down because they thought they thought this Hayden Glass sex addict character that women wouldn't like this character you know it wouldn't appeal to women and, and as we know all the readers are women basically you know 95% of the readers especially in the in the in the mystery thriller genre are are women in their 70s basically you know they're not Chuck Palahniuk's crowd right yeah, yeah. so um and, and what I've discovered is that it's just absolutely the opposite because this what this character is, is it, he's a, a, a faulty character who is aware of his fault, right? He's in program. He's in. He's got a sponsor. He, he gets his 30 days. He gets his 60 days. He falls off the wagon when he has issues, and he goes back to day one. So he's trying to be a better person, right? So he knows he's got a problem. He's aware of his problem, and and he's trying to keep it a secret from certain people and and and, other, and, and he's he's the kind of person who's, he's heroic, but he would never say he's heroic. So the characters around him recognize that he will sacrifice himself for others, while at the same time he's a very comp- complex character who's a sex addict, who's dealing with his own issues and, and, and is not the best model of a human being. Um, and so, in a sense, the characters that he, that he meets, the female characters, they want to fix him, right? I mean, you want, and so I think the reader it appeals to readers because they see a character, first of all, everyone knows someone who's got an addiction issue. Someone in their family, you know, can be. So they recognize these, the, this, this challenge of a human being who is aware, he's self-aware of his addiction and is trying to become better. And you want to help that person become better. So I think, and I didn't think about this ahead of time, but I just kind of, in retrospect, as I look at the fact that women, for the most part, really like this character, and I think it's well, I think it's because of that, because they see the humanity in that person and he wants to change and it's hard to change. And you and you want to help him change, you know,
0: and you and by being so um, upfront about it, you take away the shame. There, there's the, the shame kind of goes away when you like, when you bring. I used to be ashamed to say I, you, I grew up Jehovah's Witness. I was so uptight about that. So I, I'm not not that it's the same thing, but there, there's there, there's if you just blow it out there and people go, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, I've been through that, too. Oh, I understand that kind of blew my mind. I don't know if you had absolutely. You probably. Yeah,
1: absolutely. To be able to be open and honest and vulnerable uh, and see what comes back and uh, absolutely honest. Just being honest is like it, people are, are dying to hear honesty, you know, and, and into something that, that touches them and um, and is recognizable to them in their lives.
0: Even writing fiction, you can tell when the author is being honest and true or not. It's such a trip.
1: And well, that's interesting too, because um, the third book that I was writing, I, I wrote a whole book and threw it out the door, basically, because it wasn't something that, that I was familiar with. I was, you know, was, I did a lot of research on it, but you know, I, I, my process is that I kind of have to write me. You know, I have to write who I am. And, I, and um, Hayden Glass is, is close to me, you know. And even though it takes place in in police world and LAPD I can I can get all that break in but it's this one central character that is that is my experience that I can write from and um, when I'm not writing from me I'm not writing as well so whatever character I write you know I, I wrote this this short story that that, that was uh, in, a, in a compilation for red hen press and I, that's something I want to make into a film at some point too but it's you know, it's, um, it's not hidden glass, but it's really, again, kind of from a character that's very close to what I've experienced. And, um, and that's just where I, that's, you learn how you write, you know, as you get older. And that's where I write best is it's gotta come from me. And then when it does come from me, it's absolutely honest, you know? As opposed to trying to take some other, I tried to write a short story once uh, from the point of view of a turkey hunter in Alabama. Right? And I'm a vegetarian, right? And, and I did, this just gonna be an eight page story Right? And the last page was going to have this kind of twist. And I went to Alabama and I went on a turkey hunt and I was hoping they wouldn't kill a turkey and thank God they didn't kill a turkey, you know. But I did all this research. I did like the research you would do for write a novel, right? And, and I ultimately didn't write the short story because I couldn't really get in the head of this 18 year old Alabama turkey hunter that I wanted to portray. And maybe someday I'll, I'll do that. But I just, at some point, I realized it doesn't ring true, you know?
0: Not ringing true. It it not even even if it's not about us when we're writing, it has to just ring. There's just that little truth nugget that's got to be in there for me.
1: Absolutely, and people recognize it when they read. That's what that's what you know people see as good writing. It captures real truth, you know. And I don't know, writing's a weird thing. I mean, you almost shouldn't write for money because anytime you take someone else's assignment, you know, how do you make it your own? And then if you make it your own, this is, this is the, the problem with writing for TV or film or whatever on an assignment, is that what it takes to make it your own is such a painful thing. I mean, you have to put so much of yourself into it that you just can't see someone else then arbitrarily change it, you know, or put another writer on it and suddenly it's a different thing, you know, because, you know what it takes to, to, to um, you know, integrate this story into your own personal life and then bring it out as who you are, you know? Um, and, and that's why it's so satisfying to write a novel or a short story because you, what, what comes out at the end is what stays, you know? And it's you, and it doesn't, it's not just, you know, the, the seed for someone else's commercial idea that's gonna fit into this time slot on this TV series, and that's a different, that's a different thing. You know, you got to be ready for that if you're going to do that world. But you're not going to be really good at that unless you make it you. You know, so you have to be the kind of person that is able to take that kind of pain and and not let it affect you too much. You know, and have or have something else at your core. Like Attica Locke writes um, for that um, the TV series. I forgot the name of the series, but she also writes novels. So when she's doing the series, she said that she's open to collaboration and things changing because she knows that her real voice comes out in her novels. Her novels are going to be there. You know.
0: That's how we end the interview. I love that. Novels are going to be there. Yes. Stephen J. Schwartz, thank you so much for being on the show. Man.
1: Yeah, Tony, it's been great having drinks with you. <laughs> a lot of fun. I'm really glad I got to meet you.
0: And that was my interview with Stephen J. Schwartz. He's the author of... Boulevard and Beat, and he's also the editor of Hollywood versus the author. Check him out. And now, here is director Bent Hammer discussing his film Factotum, based on Charles Bukowski's novel.
2: Hello, uh, my name is Bent Hammer. I'm the director of uh, Factotum, uh, based on uh, Charles Bukowski's novel by the same name. And uh, welcome to Drinks with uh, Tony.
0: So since uh, Factotum is uh, based on Bukowski, when did you discover Buk- uh, Charles Bukowski um, as you were growing up?
2: Yeah, I read him when I was younger, not mm-hmm. not too young. I was in my yeah first years of my twenties, I think, uh-huh. and uh, I liked him very, very much, uh, and uh, especially uh, his. Poetry, which I didn't uh, read too much of, but I remember it very well. The the few I read, and I dived more into it when uh, when we uh, prepared for the film, actually. And uh, but I uh, yeah, I'm not a disciple. There are so many Bukowski disciples, but I read him among uh, other writers. But uh, he uh, yeah, he stayed with me for all these years, and suddenly he. Popped up again as an opportunity to to uh, to adapt into a film. Uh-huh.
0: If um if you would have read Bukowski today, do you uh you know as we're older, do you think it would have had a as much of an impact, or because it, it seems like that early twenties is the the right time to hit Bukowski, I think. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's his kind of resistance and his way of looking upon the middle class life and people has to do what's expected of them and all that. But I think when when you're getting a little bit older, it uh, like I said, it stay, stays with me. And uh, if you read his uh, poetry, mm-hmm. I think it gives a kind of more depth to his uh, his more existentialistic way of writing in his. Uh, prose in his, uh, in his uh, novels right. and uh, he's he's not coming up with any I mean answers but uh, his questions are really good and uh, there is also I think an empathy for the people living on the edge uh, without being pathetic which I like very much uh, yes yeah, so I uh, it changes probably a little bit. You don't focus on the same things uh, maybe when you're older. But And that's why I'm hoping also that young people will uh, see the film, take the humor. I mean, the humor is there. It's, it's obviously a part of uh, surviving this kind of life. But it's also, for me, uh, gives him a depth because it uh, requires a self-view to have this kind of humor, a distance to his life as well. So uh but I mean if you're younger why not uh, just take it as uh inspiration also for th- that part of life I mean you should be in opposition when you are young that's that's important yeah.
0: Did um did you read him in English or a different language
2: Both uh no most in English actually okay. I did I some years later I tried some translation into Swedish I remember once but that was just awful oh, I really? couldn't read it yeah huh. so um, Hammond rye I think I read in Norwegian translated but the rest I read in uh, in uh, in English oh, okay. cool.
0: thank you thank you um. <clears throat> so what was the experience I mean it must wait um, it must have been an amazing experience and probably frustrating at the same time trying to uh, adapt um, Factotum, as well as some uh, just Bukowski's life in general, into a screenplay. Um, what was that experience like for you?
2: It's my first adaptation. I uh. did it together with my partner on the project, uh, Jim Stark. We co-wrote it and we uh, co-produced it as well. Uh, and it's—I mean, it's—it's not—it's uh, difficult. However, if you write the uh, original screenplay or if you adapt. Do it, an adaption uh, There was, I mean, I- if you are talking to a script doctor, <coughs> they would say, "No way, don't do this uh, uh, novel because there is no dramaturgy. The main character is it not? He's not changing. I mean, that's <laughs> that's all about Pekoski. Actually, that's <laughs> that's him. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> we knew that, uh, and it's very episodic." Uh, so that was kind of a challenge, but I liked it. So we had to go for the more for the atmosphere. And also we brought in uh, other works. Uh, he had done the poetry. It's hard to, to show a writer without kind of showing what he's thinking. And uh, I've always been afraid of doing voiceover, but this time it was really... Uh, required I think and uh, uh, so we decided that before we start shooting we have seen films so often saved by the voice. voiceover but we planned it carefully we recorded all of it Matt uh, Dillon uh, read all the, all the poetry and I timed it uh, with my script supervisor so I knew how long time I needed for each uh, sequence to, wow. to put in the, the poetry even if it didn't end exactly as I Planned, I mean, but still, we I knew uh, knew the approximately length and like that, and uh, we was very lucky because Matt's a really good. Uh, he's a very good reader, has a good pace, have a very good voice, uh, and that uh, that helped a lot. And I'm very happy that we did that. Actually, it's uh, uh, it also gives this depth that I think maybe a lot of uh, uh, people need to. Uh, to get a little bit deeper into his uh, his, uh, writing and descriptions, which is more, I mean, or less uh, uh, on the first level, which it also has to be. I mean, the film has to function on the first level, but still there are thoughts behind it as well.
0: Did you? Uh, I guess you had to go through Linda Lee Bukowski to get some of the rights. Um, was she, was she in like cooperation with the film? Have you heard her thoughts regarding the ending? I mean the um, the final piece, et cetera?
2: Yeah, Linda, that that has been just a pleasure working with Linda. We yeah we have be, became very good friends, and uh, I talked to her very often, and. Uh, uh, she has be been very supportive all the way, and but still, I was very uh, yeah, nervous uh, when uh, the day she uh, she saw the film in, in it was screened for her in Los Angeles, and she called me. And I mean, you never know. And uh, sh- but she, the f- the first thing she said to me was that, uh, uh, Bent, I had to say, I I was touched. And I, that that's the best thing she could tell me. I mean, because to, to try not to fall into the cliché and myth, which is so easy with, uh, with Bukowski and also with the film uh, dealing with this down-and-out life, uh-huh. drinking, I mean, womanizing, playing on horses, losing jobs, I mean, this low life. And she recognized... Uh, a lot of tenderness how neat because he was always combing his hair putting his clothes very uh, perfect on the chair even if he was very drunk I mean all these small things that uh, I focused on in the film tried to make it more authentic in a way that uh, all that made this kind of recognition that she uh, she liked though it's not a documentary and i mean i didn't try to make a documentary but still it's uh there was some links and some uh, relations to the to the book some feelings of the book the 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 soul of the book that she recognized and uh, that was very nice for me to hear yeah
0: yeah that's good that's the <laughs> i would i would have been Crapping my pants if I did that. <laughs> if I knew she was watching something I adapted yeah. of his. Um, mm-hmm. What was Sean Penn actually uh, originally cast? Is that right, or one of, or in the original running?
2: Uh, Sean is a good friend of uh, of Linda, and he was a good friend of, of Hank. Right. And uh, uh, you know, we struggle with this financing all this with this film for like eight years before we uh, got it together and linda she always was very uh, careful about she she didn't want to push and we had really to say yeah but i want your opinion read this draft and like that and uh, there was a time when she asked me bent i i like it so much and i would really if you want and just tell me if you want would you like that I give it to to Sean and uh, let him read it and she really wanted him to see my first film also Eggs which I made 10 years ago but uh, that was also a film that Linda liked very much and I said yeah why not and uh, Sean saw it and he liked it very much he liked the film he liked the script and he wanted to do it so I came up here to San Francisco actually to meet with him uh, over in the marine country there and uh, we talked for a long time he was just doing the the pledge he was editing the pledge I saw the first part of of the pledge I remember and uh, I think honestly he really wanted to do it and we we was we kept on for like one and a half year and he couldn't find time to to schedule it and uh, in the end we called him up and uh, and said that it's uh, it's hard for us to continue when we when it takes so long time and he said uh, that he still wanted to do it but uh, he f- he understood perfectly well if we wanted to to just continue without him so uh, so that that was that journey but uh, well we had nice, nice talks. We met another time also and talked through it, but it, yeah, we couldn't make it. So
0: yeah, because he was originally for Barfly too. I think he was there, supposed to be originally cast yeah, for that. Maybe, maybe.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so how how was the casting process for Matt Dillon and also Lily Taylor and uh, Marissa Tomei? Um,
2: yeah, in a way it's it's kind of strange because uh, we. Uh, we ended up with, I mean, there is a huge cast there, it's like 61 person with all the small parts and uh-huh. so on. But the main part is uh, friends or friends of friends. We ended up uh, there in a way. And Matt was suggested by uh, Fisher Stevens. He, he oh. And this was before Crash so for me Matt had been gone for a long time and I hadn't seen I loved Matt's uh, f- earlier films yeah. and then he was gone with his uh, uh, it, romantic comedies which is not my cup of tea but obviously he did well uh, so I reacted oh Matt yeah and, uh, but my focus went back to the earlier films I said, yeah, maybe that's a good example and uh, he said, and he's looking for something new. To uh, he want to do something else, and he read the script. And by then, he also had the chance to go and see my uh, my film, Kitchen Stories, right. which was playing in uh, in uh, in New York. By then, he liked it very much and wanted meeting with me. And we talked through it. And yeah, and then it was a process, of course. But it was very nice meeting with him, and I understood quite well that he. He really uh, he could do it, actually, and I mean all. I mean this just as a Norwegian coming from the melancholy vodka belt, as I used to say. I, I thought I could keep down whatever I had to keep down, and but still using the small part of which made uh, also very good at his uh, his uh, kind of flirting potential, but just a little. His uh, he's comic talent uh, and uh, I mean try to uh, yeah and he has been out also I mean before he has been out a couple of nights so we have a lot of references and I think first of all saying that this is not a documentary it's not uh, Bukowski it's his alter ego Henry Chinaski and I think that that would be crucial for any actor not try to look like Bukowski you have to just to try to catch the spirit of him. I mean, uh, then you will sense him. And of course, he came in all over. We tried to forget him, but he came in all over after a while anyway. And I also remember once we was walking around in uh, Central Park talking, and I uh, said, well, shall I call up Linda? Do you want to talk to Linda? Okay. Yeah, and she said, why not? And I called up Linda, and, and she, she was very happy about uh, that, uh, that Matt uh, before he, she saw it but she liked that uh, choice and uh, oh. they talked for like two hours and I, I just had to go away I, the last thing I heard was no no never white socks never always two pants yeah. <laughs> I, I mean like this yeah. so we, and Matt also died very seriously into his poetry he also read because when he was younger in his oh. early 20s but mainly yes. yeah, like me yeah. but mainly <laughs> Little bit of the poetry, but mainly the, the the novels. So he died very much into the the poetry again, and he showed me a lot also that he found that I liked very much. So that was a kind of more, what to say, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know the word in it, but um, the it kind of not too specific reference, but uh, kind of poetic <laughs> reference, then, which was very good to 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 have with those. Yeah. So, so yeah. Ben Tammer on Pirate Cat Radio.
0: His film, Factotum, playing now based on the life of Henry Chinaski, fictional alter ego of Charles Bukowski. And as we were talking about, a lot of of, uh, readers discover Bukowski when they're in their 20s. So if you're in your 20s and you haven't read Bukowski yet, go to the library or get online and order some Charles Bukowski. His poetry... um, one of my uh one of my introductions to him was uh war all the time. I really liked that collection of poetry. And he's got uh, the Charles Bukowski reader um and a bunch of other stuff that a lot of his short stories like um no, uh, notes of a dirty old man and um what else? There's some other stuff in there. Anyway, so yeah, go to your library, find some Charles Bukowski. What's interesting though is if I think I I discovered him when I was in my 30s. It would be a completely different situation. Okay. So, factotum playing in theaters now. And hey, that could be your uh that could be your introduction to Charles Bukowski. Go see a movie. And then if you think it's cool, read his books. You are listening to Drinks with Tony on Pirate Cat Radio, eighty seven point nine FM, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Piratecatradio.com. dot com. We're getting right back into the music. And what do I have queued up? absolutely nothing <laughs> I guess I need to cue something up okay give me a second where the heck did I put that Le- 15 okay I think this is the right song this should be Legion Condor with Humanity versus Society on Pirate Cat Radio yeah it's the right song Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Next week on the show, we have Gabriella Hurstick and she's the author of Inner Witch. Remember to sus- subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or, hell, even if you want, just give me a call. I'll play any episode you want over the phone. Just get in touch. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony.